If you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer? And I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. Our pulpit uh, version is the New King James Version. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. This is the word of our Lord. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the, sm- the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Glorious God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you open our eyes this morning to see amazing, glorious things concerning you in your word. For asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We all wanted to be comforted. That's, that's our innate desire from, from the great tragedies of the death of a loved one, or perhaps... The greatest strategy of all in the life of a, of a, a believing parent, the, the going astray of a child to the little boo-boos of a cut finger, we want to be comforted. We want to be comforted by the Lord. We want to know that everything is going to be okay. That's something that I think is innate, universal to all of us in this room this morning. And that's the point of Isaiah 40. As the chapter begins with the proclamation of comfort, the double proclamation of comfort and the assurance that our sins are covered when he mentions in chapter 2 that God has provided double for our sins. That is the perfect fit, the perfect covering, the perfect, perfect atonement 
for our sins. Now, comfort and encouragement is a Trinitarian business. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit encourage and comfort God's people. The Father in the New Testament is called the God of all comfort in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Son and the Spirit are both working together to comfort, to help, to counsel His church. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm going to send another comforter like me. And use the word another to signify another of the same kind. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who has saved you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, whose salvation has been applied to you by the Spirit of God, is ministering comfort and encouragement to you. So he tells the prophet, say to my people in verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people. Now chapter 39, as we saw last week, is a major dividing point in the book of Isaiah. Now, although there are some sporadic uh, glimpses of light in the first 38 chapters of Isaiah, most of it is gloom and doom. It's judgment against Tyre. It's judgment against Babylon. It's judgment against Ethiopia. judgment against Egypt. Judgment against pretty much every neighboring nation of Israel. And judgment against Israel itself. But then when you read Isaiah 40 through 66, there's a major difference in emphasis. Everything is great. God is going to win. The victory is at hand. God is comforting His people. The suffering servant is coming to deliver us. He is going to be the one who's, through whose stripes we are healed. He's the one who's going to take upon Him the sins of His people. And there's this great change in tone culminating, to, culminating with the new heavens and new earth in chapter 65 and 66. It's so different, as I said, last week that some people even suggested that two people wrote Isaiah. One, more like me, pessimistic, wrote Isaiah 1 through 38, and someone else more cheery, like you weird people who are cheery, wrote Isaiah 40 through 66, because they're so different. But we don't have to think that way, because chapter 39 explains the difference. In chapter 39, we have this little glimpse into the history of Israel where um, Isaiah comes to talk to King Hezekiah, and it concludes, Isaiah concludes that judgment portion by prophesying about the Babylonian captivity, which, which is about 100 years down the road. In verses 5 through 7, he prophesies that the Babylon is going to come. It's not going to be Assyria. Assyria is knocking at the door. And uh, Isaiah says, not going to be Assyria. It's going to be Babylon that's going to come and take you captive. And the Babylonian captivity then becomes that ultimate sign of chastisement in the Old Testament, like the Exodus was the ultimate symbol of redemption in the Old Testament. So that's the, that, that concludes that portion of judgment. And then when we enter chapter 40, Isaiah is fast forward in about 200 years into the future to the end of that Babylonian captivity that he had prophesied. The, and he places the people at the place where they are about to be delivered. They're, about, they're going to be able to return to Palestine if they choose to do so. There's a time of great euphoria among God's people. And Isaiah 40 then reminds them that their comfort is not in the deliverance from Babylon. Their comfort is not in the ability to go back to the promised land. Their comfort is in God himself. And that sets the tone, that delivery, that comfort for the rest of the book of Isaiah. And as we saw last week in verses 1 through 11, 
we find the good news of comfort, the announcement that there's going to be this comfort. The, the comfort is not described till we get to the very last portion of the chapter, verses 27 through 31. But in these first 11 verses, God is telling the people, I'm going to comfort you. And then when the verses that we read aloud this morning, 12 through 26, we're still not to the comfort yet, but the, God describes to us who He is. And that's important because we're not going to buy into the comfort if we don't believe in the right God of the Bible. So He describes to us who He is, and then ultimately in verses 27 through 31, we have the gracious gift of comfort. How the comfort is to impact and encourage our troubled Hearts And our goal for today is to look at those two last sections from verses 12 through 31. But we see how we do on that. Last week we saw that ultimately the good news of comfort is a call for the church to see her God. Look at verse 9. O Zion, you bring good tidings. Get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's the ultimate message given to the church. Behold your God. And, and as we saw last week, notice that he, the, the Zion is not, Jerusalem is not saying, Behold your God to the pagans. It's, she's turning to Judah who is also God's people, and say, Behold your God. The ultimate comfort that the people of God can find is in beholding their God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Church of Jesus Christ, behold your God. And look at how he talks about himself in verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Behold your God, church. The mighty arm that rules and judges is the same arm that carries the lambs in his bosom. He is the shepherd king who leaves the 99 and goes after the lost one. Here is your God, church of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and they follow him, who lays his life for the sheep and picks it up again. Isaiah says, Behold your God, fix your gaze on this one, this great and glorious God who has now come. In Him, atonement, covering for your sins, forgiveness for your sins has been made. In Him, God has matched His mercy to your need perfectly, and His name is Jesus of Nazareth. So behold your God as you seek comfort from the Lord. And having called us to behold our God, Isaiah goes on to tell us what kind of God we have. And that's what we find in verses 12 through 26. God's, in essence, auto-description of Himself. And our God of comfort is independent from creation. Look at verses 21 and 22. 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, as its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God is independent from his creation. He's not part of creation. the, The theological word is that he transcends creation. He does not need this. Here, let me boost your self-esteem. God does not need you. He can do whatever He wants without you. And yet, that being the truth, He chose to send His Son so that you can be part of His kingdom. Out of love and according to the glorious will of His, uh, of the, the, the glorious will, His blessed will, He chose to save you. To lure Himself, to condescend, so that you could be His But he is independent from creation. He rules over the source of creation. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God is... One thing we think, I think, uh, the younger we are, the more we think that, that God is like us, just bigger. That's not the case. God is completely not like us. He's completely separate from us. He's wholly other. And Isaiah says that our God is immense. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured the he- uh, heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Isaiah not, not saying that God that literally has a body. Some false teachers have said, oh, see, uh, God is this big because he said he measured the universe with a span of his hand, so he must be the No, he's talking about just... Using literary figures to tell us that our God is immense, is bigger than anything, is infinite. There's no place in creation where God is not. That's another way to say that He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere in His fullness. We tend to think of God being everywhere as His love being here and His justice being there and His arm being over there. No, God is present everywhere with all His attributes at the same time without fail. And that's your God. That's the God that Isaiah calls you to behold. All the mighty empires, the rise and fall of nations, it's like dust on the scales. They don't even register. Look at verses 15 and 16. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. In Lebanon, is not sufficient to burn, nor it's sufficient for a burnt offering. All the most powerful nations in the world are just like dust in the scale. What does it mean? It means that they don't even register. In, in, uh, in college in Brazil, I worked at an organic chemistry lab. And one of the most prized possessions in that lab was an atomic scale. And it was a scale that was kept in a vacuum cage so that no dust would fall because... It could uh, alter the balance there. But even then, we had a difficult time measuring really small amounts of stuff. And that's the picture that God is painting here, that compared to Him, the, the, the most powerful nations, the stuff that nations are renting about, the things that the nations claim to themselves, is like they don't even tip the scale. You put all of them in one side of the balance of the scale, and still, God on this side no, not even a movement on the scale. God fills 
all places, at all times. He's vast, he's immense, and he's mighty, he's untroubled, he's undisturbed by political turmoil of any sort. Now the nations, uh, the psalm says, are raging and plotting against him. All the nations, the world is plotting against God, and yet he laughs at their puny plans to dethrone him. In Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He, that is God, who sits in the heavens, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. This past week, there were two great summits. And they were touted as the greatest summits of the decade. The NATO leadership met. That's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They should probably change their names because you have like Turkey as member of NATO and they don't really border the North Atlantic. But here, the, 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 the supreme leaders, uh, President Biden was there and, and all the different presidents who were there. And they met. And that's supposed to be something that's going to really change the world. And then the other one was the, pres- the meeting between the U.S. president and the Russian president on the 16th. So supposedly also is going to change the direction of all things. So these summits were touted as the most important meetings of the decade. And that the future of the world depended on them. Yet, God is the one who is everywhere and in control of all nations. Our hope is not in Biden. Our fear is not against Putin. We don't care necessarily about Trudeau. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> Macron is not that powerful. Merkel is not the issue. It is the Lord who is in control of all things. Some trust in chariots, Psalm 20 says, and some in horses. But we, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. It was so sad in the last election to see how many Christians, how many churches lost hope because one candidate won versus the other. Is God not the Almighty anymore? Is He not immense? Is, not, is He not everywhere? Is He not in control of all things? Are, isn't, aren't the hearts of kings and presidents and governors in His hands and He turns them however He wants? Yes, our God hasn't Change the immense God is the comfort of the church of Jesus Christ. But our God of all comfort is also all wise. Look at verse 14. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? People of God, God is not figuring, figuring things out as they go. He's not saying, Oh, I can't believe Miley decided to move to Georgia. Now I'm going to have to change my plans. No, that's what I say, not what God says. He's not figuring things out as he goes. He knows everything necessarily and immediately. Everything is present with God. Nothing's going to catch him by surprise. And that's why the Apostle Paul breaks out in doxology. And in Romans 11, verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We think that we know what's best for us. We think that we can control our future. We think that if we can plan and scheme, we are going to have the best life ever. But yet God is the only all-wise one. And if when we relinquish our lives, when we give our lives to Him, let Him be in charge, that's when we're going to be living our best lives, now and forever. 
Our God of comfort is also unlike any other God we can come up with. Look at verse 18 through 20. And try to catch the humor of this passage. This is, this is God using, using sarcasm in uh, talking about the, the, the idols of the world. Look at verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, and the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to, to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Isaiah here, God through Isaiah, is laughing at the very idea of idolatry. He is mocking the idol and those who make them. Now, idols in the ancient Near East, if, you're, if you're, you had money, there would be a core of wood, and that core would be uh, covered with either uh, plate, uh, gold or silver, you know, beaten down and then covered by an artisan. And then that artisan would also place chains of silver so that you could affix the idol on your little altar so that the idol would not tip. That's the, that's the idea. And if you're too poor and can afford the silver or the gold, then go ahead and find a clump of wood. But just be careful this doesn't rot. You don't want your idol, you don't want your God rotting, right? You don't want it to last some time. So find a piece of wood that's not rotting or rotted, and that will not rot so that you can have your uh, God. And make sure that you find uh, some, a, good, a good woodworker like Matt that can actually plane the bottom of the idol so that when you stand it, it doesn't wobble, doesn't torter, and doesn't fall forward. See what Isaiah is doing? See what God is doing through Isaiah? Talking about the absurdity of idolatry. And you see the imagery here? Remember when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from Israel in 1 Samuel? And the Philistines took the Ark and put it in the temple of Dagon? What happened to the idol? It always tottered. It fell before the God of the, the Ark. With wood from the same tree... They cook their lunch and build an idol. If you've been here going for a long time, remember back when you used to do Reach Out Adventures Vacation Bible School, and there, is a, there was a song we sung about the God made of cedar wood, that with half of the tree they'll, make a, 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 they'll cook their food, and with half of the tree they'll make an idol to bow down and worship. That's from Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 17. And that's the absurdity. This whole idea is ludicrous when we have the true God before us. To try to make some other god and worship that is as foolish as going out here, get a, a Douglas fir or whatever other a maple, uh, using some for the fire pit, and out of the same tree you build a, a little statue and you dedicate your life to that. And before we get to uh, feeling too smug and superior to these poor, unenlightened, uh, engineer East people, let's look at our own hearts here. We need to see how easy and how tempting idolatry really is in our own sophisticated hearts and lives. We are often tempted to remake God in our own image, conveniently accommodating to our preferences and our tastes. The gods, our God is often made according to us, and He just happened to never really be bothered by our own sins. Our God tends to be, the God that we make for our own image tends to be bothered by other people's sins. 
Not by my own sin. The God that we come up with will never meddle too much in our pet sins. The God that we may that we make after our own image is not going to care if I live a life for myself. And we tend to make God after our own image instead of worshiping the God that's revealed. In the Bible, I remember, and it's interesting that Elder Anderson mentioned that in Sunday school because I had an experience of talking to somebody about the sovereignty of God. Was a Christian, and they're going through the Bible and showing how God is in charge of salvation, how from eternity past He chose and elect people to be His, and that sovereignly saves them, and those that He doesn't save, they'll go, they'll go to hell. And this person said, "My God will never do that." The problem is that then. That person's God is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a sovereign God. And we have to be careful that we may not be making little statutes. We may not be having it uh, made of gold and silver and have a, a chain that ties it to the ground. But we can make all these idols in our hearts. And we start sacrificing things to them. The problem is that they are not true gods. And they're are not going to bring the comfort that the true God of the Bible brings. What Isaiah 40 does, it, it reminds us that the God who is actually there cannot be easily tamed. We want to tame God. We want God to be doing our bidding, right? We want God to be the genie in the bottle where by our prayers we rub the side and the genie comes up and gives us our desires. That's not the God of the Bible. There are no chains that will hold Him. He is independent. He is immense. He's wise. He's incomparable with any other God that we can come up with. And the, our God... Our God of comfort is sovereign. Look at verses 21 through 26. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What is Isaiah doing? What's God doing by asking these questions? he's, He's implying that these are all things that we should have known as a people of God. These are not new things. This is not the first time the people of God are hearing about the sovereignty of God. And these are things that you and I, as those who have been redeemed by God, should know. In verse 22, It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. That's what's going to happen to the princes, the judges who think that they are so great. They barely come into power. They think there's going to be this great thing and God, and that's the end of, of them. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. The whole created order owes its existence and its preservation to his word and power. And you say, that's a lie because science proves that everything came from the Big Bang. Well, I don't know what science you're following, because real, true science doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, 
No secular respected phys- uh, physicist would agree with that statement. Maybe the pop website that you read or the Reddit thread that you read might say that, but real science, no. So don't sell your life to something that science, which, who is this person science anyway, right? As if there's a monolithic, only one opinion, nobody else that diverges in that. Don't sell your soul to the so-called science that is no science at all, but really a religion that is seeking to undermine the God, the true God of the scriptures. He is sovereign. He created all things. All things owe their existence and preservation to Him. And God preserves and governs all His creatures in all their actions. Princes, politicians, the Supreme Court justices. There were a couple important decisions handed out by the justices this past week. And in our land, they are the true rulers. We're not a... Uh, constitutional republic. We are a land ruled by the Supreme Court. That's, that they are the ones that determine what is, is and what's not. But even with their so power and so much power and influence that before God, they are like grass. And God blows on them and they are gone. God has not abdicated His throne. Now this is supposed to be the worst year for hurricanes and drought. Now, it doesn't seem like to go together. But the east, southeast is supposed to suffer the worst of hurricane season of, uh, of known to man. The west is supposed to have the worst drought in the, the history of recorded rainfall. So that's what we're... We, and then we're heading into midterm elections, and everybody's putting their hope on how, who's going to be elected next year, and if we're going to take a house, a chamber or two in the, national, uh, in the U.S. Congress and so on. But people of God, let the electorate do what it will. Let the forces of nature bombard our coastland. Let our forests burn. Let disease and division grip our nation. But let us not for, never forget that our Lord reigns. None of that is happening outside of his sovereign rule. The great hymn writer William Cooper, in his best-known hymn, God moves in mysterious ways, says, Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. That is our sovereign God. And the one who is coming, who is to bring such comfort to His people, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. From our perspective, this God who has come, has come in Jesus Christ. Infinite in wisdom, independent upon the creatures, immense, incomparable, sovereign, that God joined Himself in the person of His Son to human nature in all its frailties and weaknesses and limitations so that in Christ we might be redeemed. So brothers and sisters, and we're going to not cover 27 to 31. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. This is the God of the Bible. The God I just presented to you is the God of the Bible. Maybe you have taken your eyes from Him lately. 
Maybe life has gotten complicated and your eyes have been fixed on all the fears and anxieties that life in this world brings. Brothers and sisters, behold your God. Behold Him in His matchless wisdom. Behold Him in His sovereign providence. And behold Him supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, coming for you to be a God to you and a Savior. Now here is the comfort in a weary land. Sin forgiven and stores of grace to sustain you and to keep you, no matter what the storms are in your life. People of God, behold your God and come to find comfort in Him in these troubled days that we live in. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have opened our eyes through your Spirit. We pray that we would hold on to the, to the, to the vision of God that your Word gives us and that would follow you with our whole hearts. And again, we pray that if there are those whose eyes are closed to you, that you open their eyes, they might see the glory of Christ and be saved even today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.